the wealth space in particular is at a point of pivotal change. From a, an M&A perspective, what we are starting to see more now is big fish by big fish. That is absolutely a sector that can be hugely disrupted. There is an army there waiting to be mobilised and there is an advice gap waiting to be filled. I think the mistake a lot of people make is to think of an event just as an event, like a heartbeat in time. My favourite thing to do is to go walking up mountains. Hello and welcome to The Effective Advisor, a podcast from Change Squared. I'm Ben Wright. Today we're going to be discussing the importance of human interaction and who better to do that with than founder and managing director of Owen James Events, James Gold. Hi James, welcome to the show. Hi Ben, thank you very much for having me today. Oh, not a problem. Thank you very much for coming on. I've been coming to Owen James events for, for years now, and I can honestly say that you create something magical from your events that I don't find from other events. Um, and today I want to dive into what you do, what your thought behind things, what's your secret sauce really to try and make the events as wonderful as they are, especially as the world is moving more to a digital landscape. Um, and I must admit that Maybe I'm a bit of a hypocrite here because I, I do preach that digital is wonderful and we can do everything online from anywhere in the world. There is something nice about coming to a place like Tilney Hall where we're recording this podcast and being surrounded in the same room with, with your peers. But start, let's start from the beginning. Tell us a bit about Owen James Events. Absolutely. Okay, well, um, I set up the business with my then partner, Evie Owen, back in 2005, uh, so 18 years ago. And before that, we did six years of PIMS, which was the big jamboree on the cruise ship, which was wonderful fun, full of all sorts of stories. Um, and we kind of got to the end of that six-year period, and we saw that it was unsustainable, that model, as fun, etc., as it was to just be away out at sea for three days. And people were looking for tighter communities where they could come together, they could strategize. So both from Evie and myself, we came up with a, an idea which we called a meeting of minds at the time, where we said, well, we, because we'd done PIMS, we know the IFA community, let's try and create something where we bring the top 100 advisory distributors, their strategic heads together, we do lots of research with them beforehand and then we stick them all in a room together for 24 hours and we get them to talk about everything from regulation to future business models, etc, etc, um, with uh, consultants, regulator, providers and so on, where there's no product pushing, but it's all around trying to share insights and find ways to drive change forward. And here we are. 18 years later, we've, we've broadened out into lots of different communities from retail banking to mortgage to asset management and private banking. And it's been a fantastic journey. Um, we've learned a lot. Uh, we've shed tears and had laughs, but it's, 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 been, it's been good fun. So uh, I remember PIMS well, to be honest. I had se several trips out into the sea on PIMS and um, most of them were a bit of a blur, to be honest. Uh, there was a, a, a lot of consumption happened on those, uh, on those boats, um, but it was great fun. Interesting, what you've just said there has made me think a bit more because PIMS was very general, wasn't it? You had a huge population on there from all over, um, all different sizes of firms, different types of businesses, all kind of merged together. Whereas your events now are much more targeted 
So they're, they're much, more, um, much more direct about the type of people you want to get in a room together. Do you think that makes a big difference? It, it does. And I think that's, I mean, there's a number of changes that we've seen sweep through the industry as a result of inducement rules. And then you've had COVID, which have, have really changed the way people think and operate at events. Um, but we definitely find if you're, if you're looking to bring a community together, so back in its glory days, PIMS used to bring 600 advisors with 300 providers. So you typically had almost a thousand people on a ship. Whereas we find if you go really above 100, then people start splintering off into groups. And naturally, as you rightly said, when you look at the advisor community and you go from small to large, there's all sorts of DA to AR, all sorts of business models, etc., that you just don't naturally get those cohesive conversations happening. And that's where it's, it works, we find, much better to have these smaller, more manageable communities. I suppose everyone's got different issues, haven't they? And a one-man firm will have different issues than like a hundred-man firm that will do a thousand-man firm. So I suppose gearing people together in, in those little communities is a great way of, of putting people together who have similar problems, and then hopefully they'll, they'll solve them together, in theory. It, absolutely. And I think there is a big, when you, when you look at sort of small firm to big firm, there are naturally big differences. But it, it is interesting, overarching, there are a number of, sim, we, we are all facing a number of similar challenges and that does flow through. And, and if you include PIMS, we've, I've been doing this for over 24 years and you still see some of the same issues are rippling through. Ultimately, I think what people really like is the sense of being able to come together with a group of like-minded peers and that feeling of actually I'm not in this alone and oh, we're all going through this and, and sharing. Because um, when we first did it, people were very uh, sceptical saying, well, why would I sit around with my competitors and talk about how I'm getting through these challenges? And actually that broke down really quickly when the people realised, well, these challenges are too big for all of us and we're all going through it and actually a more collaborative approach is, is the way forward. So really interesting that obviously you have Chatham House Rules. Uh, I've been to many other events with Chatham House Rules. Here, people seem to bear their soul. Certainly at the Meeting of Minds events. And you know, I've been sat around tables, either as a, part, as a delegate or as a facilitator, with people who run seriously big businesses sat next to their direct competitors. And they are talking strategy between each other. You just don't get that elsewhere. How, how have you managed to create that feeling of safety? I, I think we've obviously been doing it for a while. And so there is a there's a trust within the platform um, in what we're doing. And, and also the conversations, we try and ensure they're quite curate, curated. Sorry. So within all of our sessions, we work with brilliant facilitators such as yourself, who've, uh, who is facilitating sessions with us today. Um, and, and that's a big part of it. So... The idea is everyone's named. You can see who's there. We um, we've got we've done lots of research in the build-up, so you can see what how people feel, and then. But as you say, when when the conversation gets going, everybody says the same thing. They're super surprised at how open people are. And we've even had tears um, at certain events around the table sometimes, and so. But but. The, but, you know, they will always be sure that what is said will never be spread outside of this. And I know that can be a bit frustrating to the media houses and so on, but, you know, we, 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 we hold that sacrament. I think that's one of the laws of the event, to be honest. The fact that it is what, what happens here is happens here, you know. It's, it's, it doesn't get leaked into the press. And 
I don't think I've ever seen a story from one of your events go into the press. So everyone seems to respect that privacy. Don't jinx it, but absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, I agree. I agree. So I remember uh, during, um, during COVID, you still ran events, but they were online, right? Yes. How, how is that different to the face-to-face uh, -face ones? When I think back into the evolution of events, so when we started to events, there were a lot of really big events, massive industry events where people go, they were two, three-day events. Sometimes you go to Monte Carlo or San Moritz or on the ship. Uh, I must have missed those ones, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, and, and, the, and the idea, it was kind of a, a bit of, it was much more around the social more than anything else, and there was lots of selling. Then the inducement rules came along and, and that, a lot of that got stripped away and it kind of, they became very business orientated. But then when COVID hit, obviously everything went online and we had a big decision to make because our events are not about presentations and selling product. They're around getting like-minded people to talk with each other around the challenges that are keeping them up at night. So we had decided to keep that model. So we just said, right, we're going to have smaller groups where it's a camera's on um, and we carefully nurtured those communities and we made sure there were specific outputs we were trying to get from each of the sessions, make sure everyone got their say, each of the sessions was carefully moderated and that worked well for us. Um, and you did see there was a, a spike. So when COVID hit, everyone went online. Everyone got really excited about online going, oh, I can do a webinar and I've got 400 people here. But that kind of came, tailed out as people got a bit tired of, of those events. Um, and then when it, that everything opened up, there was a big desire to get out into the big, big wide world whilst there was a bit of nervousness. And there was a lot of talk about hybrid. Um, and this is where we really invested a lot into hybrid and the truth is we've kind of now come to the conclusion that to do events well you've either have to be virtual or you have to be in person it's very hard to mix those two worlds um, and I think that's one of our biggest lessons coming out of this and I absolutely think there's a big place for virtual events for podcasts etc um, but I do still think there is a real need for people who want to come together meet their peers, meet their friends, be able to talk openly. And you, it's a very different engagement to the one you get online. I've, I've attended a couple of events where there have been virtual participants, or actually I had one event where I was a virtual participant. It was not the same. So certainly being a participant, you, you kind of look into the room and all I was thinking the whole time was, I wish I was there. I felt very removed from the conversation almost. I was, I was the one person on the screen. And again, when I was facilitating, I facilitated events uh, with virtual participants and it's really hard to remember to try and bring people in. And uh, yeah, it, it's tough, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think you'll always, it's, 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 you're, you're just a window looking into another world and it's very hard not to feel separated. So even now when we, uh, we, we still run a hybrid element to our events, but we find that the virtual participants just naturally group together and just want to kind of go around the events with each other and, and don't really interact with the in-person. And, and that's where I think these, these two worlds um, uh, are being kept separate. But I, but I also think people's mentality has changed. So back in the day, people would take two, three days out to go to an event. But now after COVID, people really value their home time a lot more. So you see events have become a lot shorter. People want to get home in the evenings. They want to be there in, in the morning and so on. Um, 
and 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 that's that's really changed a lot in the industry. But and also there's there is so many events out there, and so many events are very much around. Well, let's just put a lot of people in the room, and they can listen to a series of presentations and sit and soak. And you'll find after about an hour and a half, people start nodding off because they haven't moved. So it's really important to kind of get people moving and moving into different spaces and so on. And, but also people just don't want to come to an event and be sold to for the whole time, walking around booths the entire time and things like that. It's, it's people do want to strategize, not just, but also with, with providers around how the, you know, the types of products they're looking for, how they can, how they can strategize, how they can partner with each other and all that sort of stuff. Because obviously you, you, you do have providers at your events uh, and they, they tend to sponsor the round table sessions and um, help, the, help work with the facilitator to make the debate go. But um, what does, again, a difference I've noticed from your events is there is, there is no talk of products. It's like, it's a, it's a banned subject. It's more about let's strategize guys. How can we as a group try and achieve this? How do providers deal with that? You seem to have enough to keep coming back again and again, so they must like it. They, they, they do, and it's interesting. I would say there is, you, you can see in the market from providers, there are those that see, you know, see the caliber of the audience and see it as an ultimately business is built on relationships. And they see that, and it's an opportunity to hear, get to know really under the skin of the individuals and the businesses and what their challenges are, where the opportunities are. But there is still a big cohort who kind of see, well, actually, we do want to sell product. And, and, uh, and there are plenty of events that give them that opportunity out there. But I, I would say the, the ones, and we've got some great supporters um, who, who have been with us in the, in the past. And, and you can see they are the ones with the stickier relationships. They walk in, they, they really know the community well and they deliver really good content that isn't just, it isn't just centered around their own product, it's centered around the, the clients they're servicing and, and, and how they can enable their businesses to do more. By far the best way to sell a product is to help someone solve their own problem. Absolutely. And if, if your solution happens to, to kind of work into that, that, their solution somehow, then you know, all the better. Uh, but even if, even if you help them solve the problem, and at this point your solution isn't right, they'll remember you. Yeah. And then when the, when the time is right, you're the first person that they call. Uh, absolutely. And people buy people in the end. And, and the world is becoming increasingly muddied. I mean, when I think of when we came into the market almost 25 years ago, it was very simple in the sense that there were sellers and buyers. But now everybody's selling something to everybody. You know, advisors are building their own um, technology solution, their own um, outsourced DFM, whatever it may be, and it's and this buyer-seller world has become more muddled, and and it is, and this is where we we strongly believe it's all around being community-driven, and and what is exciting now for us is we have these, uh, if you like, a honeycomb of communities, and now the opportunity to start mixing ideas from those different communities together. Um, and you, you do see some real, so for example, our retail group where we get the likes of John Lewis, Google, Microsoft and so on, to mix that with the advisor community to say the mortgage community and so on and share some best practice and ideas and we're doing stuff in Switzerland and we've done stuff in Asia so you can start to share ideas from communities over there. So in, in Singapore, they, they're going through FAIR which is their 
their equivalent of RDR. So they're really keen to sort of see, well, how did we cope when we went through it and all of that sort of stuff. So, so I think there's some fantastic opportunities for cross-fertilisation. Sounds interesting. But how, how would you get the lessons of John Lewis into the financial advice space or vice versa? Well, so John Lewis is, 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 a good, is a good one. I mean, obviously it's a partnership, but what, what model? But um, the one thing that they, they've always pride themselves was around customer experience. So the one thing we did there was to get their marketing director to come in and talk about their approach and what they did differently and just some of the simple lessons. Um, I mean, this was a little while ago, or for example, we had Tesla as well, who, who uh, their marketing director, who came in and talked around how you build a brand. Um, and I mean, that was probably more relevant in the wealth space when we had them, but because they're really trying to build out their brands at the moment. So there are certain elements you can pick out some ideas and particularly in this new digital world, when you see what's happened in the retail space versus to the advisor and the wealth space, which has been quite slow to get going compared to there, that, we, you know, there are a lot of things we can learn and there's a lot of talk about what's called embedded finance, where they're looking to come and say, look, we've, we've kind of built a lot of this technology. Why don't you start using it? Um, I mean, a good, a good example would be Microsoft, so AI. Lots of people got super excited about AI, a bit like blockchain. And then very quickly, it's like, oh, actually, how do we use it? Is it re really? And then, and then the hard questions start coming. But you look at something like Microsoft, so they've got Microsoft Pilot, I don't know if you've... Copilot, yeah. Co yeah, Copilot. And, and that's fantastic because they're small, simple things you can actually absolutely apply in your business. Whereas often when you talk about AI, it's the huge big picture stuff, like how it's going to take over the world. And actually what we want to know are the, the kind of the small, simple things. And that's where we, we like to get that. And then we've got some good examples of... So in the wealth space, you've got Waverton who are using it through their business and they're happy to share, well, these are the things that worked and these are the things that didn't, where we can again get some cross-fertilisation. Fantastic. It's amazing to be able to have that, that, that calibre of people. How, how do you attract the calibre of people that you do? Because, you know, at, at these events, it is like the great and the good of financial services. I've not been to the ones that are retail or anything else, but walking around here, there is everybody. How do you get everyone to come? I'd love to say it's my looks and my charm, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately it's not true. Uh, the, the reality is, is it, it's a bit like that film where they say, if you build it, they will come. If people see their peers, they want to be amongst their peers. And so it's self-perpetuating, which is why we're so careful with our communities to make sure we've got like-minded peers within that group. Because once we, you know, if you start muddying the quality of who's on the, who's joining, etc., or trying to mixing other groups when you shouldn't do, then it can it can all fall apart. So is is the primary? It sounds terrible, but is the primary draw to be in a room with your peers, and then you just facilitate that happening? So I'm trying to say this in a nice way. People don't come because it's your event. They come because you've got other people that they want to be with in the in a place together. Now, I'd like to say it's down to my looks and my charm, but unfortunately, uh, that's not the case. Um, the reality is, is they do come to be with their peers, and, and which is what's so important that we do get their like-minded peers uh, around the room. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I'd like to ask for just 30 seconds of your time to tell you about today's sponsor. 
which is Owen James Events. If you work in financial services and you've not heard of Owen James, where have you been? Owen James put on the best events in the industry, bringing you together with your peers in iconic settings to work through the big issues we're facing today in financial services. If you're looking to put on your own event, why not get Owen James to run it for you? Their Red Folder Events Program can be run in person, hybrid or remote. And if you need an audience, they're experts at getting the right people in the room. They have access to CEOs, COOs, CIOs, in fact, pretty much all the decision makers in wealth management, financial advisory and asset management. Whichever way you choose to run your event, I guarantee that Owen James will help you make it memorable. To find out more, visit owenjamesevents.com. Okay, thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. A key part of your event is the scene setter. You ask all the delegates uh, to answer a series of questions about how they see the world and then present back on the morning of the event um, what those findings are. Do delegates rate that quite highly as, as one of the as part of the event? Because I, I find it fascinating, specifically looking at my part of the industry versus all the other ones, and who's more positive, negative about different elements. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword, if I'm really honest, in the sense that they hate completing it, and it's <laughs> like getting blood out of a stone. But they love the outputs. You're absolutely right. So you know it, there is this. There is a case, and we do say it's part of the overall experience, but absolutely, in terms of having that ability to kind of get a sense of uh, finger on the pulse on how they're feeling, and but more importantly, how that compares with other parts of the industry, then you can identify other parts that may be struggling or excelling a little bit more and where we can get best and worst practice and so on. That's, that's really useful. I must admit, I've enjoyed the last few that I've seen because uh, generally increased productivity is at the top of everyone's list and at Change Squared that is what we do. It so. is, it is and it's still right there. The only other one that's rising is uh, the cost and burden of regulation which is making a comeback after RDR now but productivity absolutely across the whole piece is a, is, is a big challenge for everyone. And the best way to overcome the burden of, uh, of regulation, become more productive. Exactly, and the best way to become more productive, work with Ben. Exactly. Oh, I like this. This is, this is turning out well. So um, you, you said earlier on that uh, the output of, of the events, you do document findings and try and identify key themes. Has anything, can you put your finger on saying, actually, that, that happened because of us? That was something that, that we influenced? There have been a number of things over the years, but uh, when RDR, if I think of our wealth management and private banking community, for example, when RDR hit, the advisors were, if you like, well organised and they'd been speaking to the SCA and the tripartite and they'd got their arguments in and, and the wealth management community were quite fragmented and really frustrated and felt like it, it kind of hit them on the side. They never really felt it would 100% happen. So what we did is we then got that industry or got that community together to work to build a collective voice to then go and, if you like, lobby more effectively. And uh, we worked at the time with the associations and, and that was a fantastic journey. And we got to a point where they were collaborating much more effectively. We could then pass that across to what is now um, um, PIMPFA, 
um, and it was the BBA back back then as well. But um, and and that was a real success, and we you know we got really high level engagement from the SEA, from the government. Um, from the Bank of England and so on. So we were really proud of that. It was quite stressful, but it was a, it was a good project where people felt there was a really good outcome at the end. I think there's, there's probably other areas that could benefit from that kind of um, joined up thinking as well. The, the one that immediately springs to mind is all the, um, uh, the ESG stuff around funds. Uh, because no one's got a clue about any of it and everyone's got a different way, a dif different way of thinking, different way of describing things. When you describe your fund, is it, is it a green fund or is it a socially responsible fund or is it, you know, what are the characteristics of it? It just seems like an absolute nightmare and for me that, that seems like something where actually if you asked everyone that came here what, what are the defining characteristics, what should they be, how would you differentiate? That would be an amazing message to kind of pass back up to say Look, the, the, the people have spoken. This is how we should be starting to categorise things. ESG is, a, is, is an interesting one because it was absolutely the hot topic for a long time. And we, across all our communities, and interestingly, it's definitely the private banking moving into the institutional world that are further ahead and more engaged on this. And actually, what you talked about there, having a lot of those conversations now about simplifying etc and I think it's something if, if I'm really honest I feel the advisor community kind of fell out of love with ESG with cost of living crisis performance wasn't great the sense was clients weren't looking for it however again with our scene set of data what you can see it fell right down the list but it's it's absolutely making a comeback with um, them saying it's now the fourth most demanded product amongst their, their clients again so it's it's shooting up there so it, 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 hasn't, it hadn't gone away as per se, but I think it, the advisor community now needs to kind of step back into this conversation. Well, I think now it's becoming more prevalent that you, you should be having that conversation with customers. You should be trying to get their preferences. And um, I think it really can be like going down a wormhole, can't it? Because you ask the wrong question, then suddenly you get an answer. It's like, yeah, I absolutely don't want to invest in anything to do with petrochemicals. And you're like, Oh, now what? Which funds don't invest in petrochemicals? Yeah, and it can be very difficult to give advice then. And I, as as awful, and this is true, I think, across financial services, is sometimes I think as an industry we, re we rely too much on regulation to drive our habits. So whether it's digitising or and investing in digital or the ESG. So there was talk for a long time that the, um, the regulator was going to introduce um, ESG into the advice process. And almost when they stepped away and said, you know what, we're, gonna, we, we're not now, everybody sort of, sort of said, oh, great, we don't need to worry about it anymore, but was making great progress until that point. And, um, and I think that's one pattern we've seen over the years, is, it, is how do we as an industry actually drive our own fate a little bit more rather than waiting for the regulator to push us forward on all, some of this stuff. Why do you think we don't? Well, I, I actually feel, and we've been saying this for a few years, is that the wealth space in particular is at a point of pivotal change for a number of reasons. I feel um, it's, it's enjoyed a fantastic period of steady growth, good markets, um, even even currently, you look with the advice gap. You know, sourcing clients isn't too big an issue. Growth growth is good throughout. We're now going through a period of, if you like, sustained um, 
well, with the cost of living crisis and et cetera. So growth is, is going to be severely curtailed. Uh, returns for clients are going to be lower. We're, we've now got consumer duty where we have to justify our value. But our, the, our pricing against what our returns are much lower than they used to be. So they're just more difficult conversations. So we're going into a, a, a more difficult period. Um, so and and I th and I if I'm really honest, I think in the past the fire hasn't been there to have to change. It, it's life has been good, um, whereas now I feel like we do have to. The flip side to that, across all of our sectors, advisors are the most positive, most upbeat. We've always said we can see they've got the most opportunity, and I think. If I, to be an advisor today is a fantastic place to be. There are other parts of the market where you can see it's seriously stressed for a number of reasons, but I honestly think the future is bright for the advisor community. We'll, 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 run, with, we'll run with that one. So um, a theme of, of markets over recent years has been consolidation. So we've seen mergers and acquisitions, uh, buyouts go absolutely through the roof. Um, there's been private equity monies come in from the US and we've seen multiples of businesses being bought going up and up and up and up. It seems to have stabilised a bit and from what I'm hearing, some businesses that have been acquired, the advisors are leaking back out and starting up new firms again. So the acquisition hasn't been a, a total success. When I talk to um, fund managers, uh, DFMs, that is the space that petrifies them. Because you can imagine if, if you've got uh, however many hundred million with a firm and then they get bought by somebody else who uses a different fund provider, that would just like make a huge dent on day one for their business. Is that something that worries you about in the event space? Well, uh, you touched on a, f a few themes there. So we have uh, two of our communities. We have the advisor community and the wealth management and private banking community, which includes these DFMs. Historically there was clear water between the two. And what we've seen is like a Venn diagram, They've, it's come together and you've seen the DFMs start to look to into vertical integration, as you've seen with the advi large advisors building out their discretionary capability as well. However, culturally, those firms are still very different. And we've got some, I heard of a really good example of a big DFM who bought a pretty big advisor crunched the businesses together, but they had their relationship managers who were obviously paid quite substantially more than the advisors. They would typically run their clients in these wonderful oak panelled rooms in London. The advisors came in and felt very uncomfortable and so they had to they said so they ended up with a corridor where the rooms gradually got more and more basic as you went down. So the the advisor or the RM could pick where they felt more comfortable. And I just thought that was that kind of just laid bare the real cultural differences that really still exist. From a, an MA perspective, Absolutely, we do feel like it's stabilised, and I feel particularly big fish buying little fish, that has stabilised. But what we are starting to see more now is big fish buy big fish as they start, as those firms look to really get true economies of scale on their vertical integration. Um, the thing that I, at the moment, I feel the regulator has almost been a bit laissez-faire about all of this, and I think back, I think it was around... 2005 when we saw the likes of AXA and Bluefin and then when the regulator came in it all sort of fell apart and it's like what's different this time and that's that's my concern here 
Um, however, there's a lot of benefits of having bigger, bigger groups, particularly from a regulatory perspective. So it'll be interesting how that space goes. It, I, it doesn't worry me because we tend to deal with those bigger and mid-sized firms. It does make it harder because that landscape's changing all the time and two CEOs become one CEO. And <laughs> so there's, there's no danger, immediate danger of not having participants for the event? No, <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine we get to a point where there's only five or six advisors in the, in the market. I'm trying to like, like some of the other industries or providers. I, I mean, the reality is, I think, and this is the cultural difference, advisors are entrepreneurial and, and I don't think they will typically lend, some do, but a lot don't lend themselves to these bigger corporations and want to you know, build out their own, their own enterprises. It's interesting, we, we do quite a bit of work around uh, firms that are selling out, so they're, they're being bought by an, an acquirer. And um, our part in the process is that we help them get ready to sell. So some of that is getting the business in order, getting the data sorted out, making sure that they've got repeatable processes and it's not reliant on any one individual person. But also, I suppose, trying to coach them about what's going to happen. Because uh, it's great when someone waves a checkbook and says, you know, here you go, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the business. And then you have these, these entrepreneurial um, men and women who have spent 20, 30 years running their own business, doing whatever they want. And then as part of the, the, the buyout, they have to work in an office. You know, and why, why aren't you in the office at nine o'clock on Monday morning? And it's just such a, a shift that people really struggle with that. So a, a large part of our, of our work is that psychological pre being prepared for what's about to happen next. Absolutely. I think one of the things, though, that worked in the favour of those advisors who could then take the cheque and go and start a business afresh and, to, and the clients would follow, is now when you see us with that power planning layer, clients looking to engage on a hybrid whether or more digital perspective, that the advisor, the, the, rela the relationship isn't just with the advisor anymore. And so the relationship is starting to move with the corporate rather than the advisor. And, and that might encourage more advisors to be stickier in the future. I, think, I still think you know, there's a big wave of advisors who have absolutely embedded uh, relationships. But some of the younger advisors coming through who maybe deal with clients on a, on a virtual perspective, that, that, that may, may be change and it might, just it might mean that clients are stickier to the corporate rather than the advisor. Me again, and I've got one favour to ask of you. Please subscribe to the channel. When I look at the analytics around our listeners, the majority of you aren't subscribed. It may sound trivial, but the number of subscribers makes more of a difference to the podcast than you can possibly imagine. The more subscribers we have, the bigger and better guests we can attract and the more we can invest into production to bring you a better finished product. It costs nothing to subscribe, and if at any point you're no longer finding the content useful, then simply click unsubscribe. Job done. So go on, do me a favour and hit that subscribe button. I guarantee you won't regret it. Thank you for listening. Now let's get back to the show. While I've got you, completely off topic, we're talking about events today, but because you have such a good, a good view across all different elements of the industry, I wanted to just ask a question around AI 
And you, you mentioned Copilot earlier, and we're seeing other entrants to the marketplace, I won't say different product names, but that are starting to use AI in financial planning, certainly around the advice side and creating recommendations for the advisors to pick from. So rather than starting from a blank page, they've got like, well, actually, here's the best thing you could do. Here's the second best thing. And they can say, yeah, I'll go with that. No, I won't go with that one. How do you see that side of things changing power planning communities? So we, we have a power planning community and... Are they worried about AI or do they see it as something that's not going to happen to them? So I, I have to be a little bit careful what I say, but... Um, so we, we did a scene setter survey with them and asked them about AI. And interestingly, they were not worried about AI whatsoever. But when you look at what they do on a daily basis, around 60 to 70% of what they're doing is report writing, which on the face of it is what could be done by AI. So you see that that is absolutely a sector that can be hugely disrupted. However, one of the, I mean, we talked about productivity and the cost and burden of regulation as big challenges. The other big challenge across the piece is attracting and retaining talent. If you look at the advice space, when we do our power planning events, it is a younger, diverse community. But what I would say, it is at which, of which only around 20% actually want to become an advisor. And when you drill deeper, my sense is there's a lot, a, a lot of that is down to lack of confidence. And, and I see this as a real opportunity for the industry, is how do we take that eight, you, you'll never get 100%. Some people just like that, you know, to be able to come in from that and not necessarily to have the client engagement. But how do we empower more to get that 20% up to 50 or 60%? Because there is an army there waiting to be mobilized. And there is an advice gap waiting to be filled. And whether you're looking at private banks with relationship managers, they have exactly the same problem. But for me, the, the answer, one of the answers, is staring us right in the face in the power planner. It can't stay as it has because AI will disrupt it. AI has a way to go. It still makes stuff up here and there. But it won't be long. It's learning super quickly. Um, so I get very passionate about the power planning community. I just think, I think it's, it's, it's overlooked in so many ways, but it, it has the opportunity to be a real turnkey for this industry. I think as, as Chris Davies from Model Office said recently when I, when I had a chat with him, if you think about technology, this is the worst it's ever going to be. I'm not, when I thought about it in that way around, it made me think, wow, what is going to happen in the next five, ten years? This is as bad as technology will ever get. It's only upwards from here, and it's already pretty impressive, some of the stuff that's coming through. The reason I asked that question is that I talked to a couple of recruitment firms recently, and one thing that they both said was that power planners have been like gold dust. Trying to find a power planner has been like a real mission, and uh, wages have been going up and up. And they both said for the first time in years, they have candidates and not enough jobs for them. And it made me think, what's changed? Why do we suddenly have more power planners than demand for power planners when only a couple of years ago it would have been a power planner? Yep, I'll take them, you know. What do they cost? I'll, I'll do it, whatever it is. And now it seems to have just have slowed down a bit. Yes, I, I, I do wonder if a gap was filled after COVID. So a lot of industries like um, we know, take the hospitality sector, seriously, um, seriously affected during COVID. They worked long hours, low paid, 
and we heard of a number of advisors that were specifically targeting, so they'd come to a hotel like Tilney Hall, you know you've got people there who are personable, bright, they could work lower hours on substantially more money, and it was easy pickings. And I wonder if, from other industries, that, that if you like, that gap filling has happened after COVID. Yeah, possibly so. I mean, COVID changed so much, didn't it? I think we're still, we're still dealing with the fallout of COVID to try and work out how things will kind of bed down, uh, I suppose, afterwards. Thank you for, for being so honest and open with that stuff. Um, I, I wasn't intending to ask that until about 10 minutes before we started today. And I thought, actually, well, well I've got you. But let, let's, let's move back to events and specifically your events. So one of the staples of, of the Meeting of Minds, which I don't know whether it is your big event or not, but I kind of see it as your, your big event. Um, a staple of that is uh, a dinner and drinks the night before. Now, I have my own theory why you do that, but what, from your perspective, what, why do you do that for your events? So again, this is something that has changed. So before, there was a lot of emphasis on the dinner, drinks in the bar, and if, if we were running an event and you turned the clock back a decade, the bar would still be full at one, two o'clock in the morning. Now, COVID has changed everything. I think people's stamina isn't just as much for this, this kind of stuff, and, and people do value their time at home. So, so what we find is people are more restrained, and because advisors don't tend to all be based in London, like a lot of the wealth managers and DFMs, um, that it gives the chance for people to arrive the night before. They can have a dinner. People are normally quite sensible now, and you'll find the bar is pretty empty by 10, 30, 11. Those hazy and days are gone. Um, and then you're just set up, up to kick off the next day. Whereas historically, we would have put the dinner at the end. People are quite tired, but they would want to then push on, and it was all around having a having a good drink with friends whereas now it's, a, it's it's slightly more earnest but it just means people are ready to rock and roll the next day are you planning to continue the dinner as a as an ongoing feature of, of the meeting of minds conferences i'm just thinking you said their attitudes have changed it's again it depends on the community so if i take our wealth management and private banking community they don't like the dinner um, it's culturally very different uh, we just launched in the mortgage space and we decided to have no dinner, but they love the idea of the dinner and now we have to put the dinner. So it depends on, on the community and we know with advisors, they like that opportunity. It's a very personable industry. They like the opportunity to rub shoulders with their friends and peers and, 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 it, and it works. I think what, what I see when I, when I attend the dinners is that um, it's maybe a little bit stuffy to start off with. Not, not stuffy, that's maybe the wrong word for it, but... People know their friends and they're going to have a chat with their friend and, and have a glass of wine or whatever. And then when you sit down at the tables, obviously the tables are mixed so you don't know who, you, who you're going to be sat with. And the first five minutes are a bit like, Ooh, who's this, who's, who's to the left, who's to the right? But then pretty quickly, you, you get chatting to people and, um, and you, you meet new people every single time you meet new people. And then the next day when you move into the event, you've, you've met the table around you and everyone seems like, oh, hello, how are you doing? And the conversation just seems to be a whole lot easier on the actual, on the match day almost, because you've had that kind of pre-match social activity almost that is, is broken the ice for many people, that when you actually get into the room, everyone's happy to talk, which is what you absolutely need for your round tables. Absolutely. And, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges for events. It's everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're going to a wedding or a business event. 
you have that moment, whoever you are, you walk into a room, you're faced with 80 people, you don't really know who they are, and you have to awkwardly grab a coffee, stand awkwardly next to someone, and it's how do you break the ice? And that's just uh, one of the big secrets is how can we encourage our audience to just break the ice as quickly as possible? So the dinner works well. We do the speed networking and it's funny, you can split it. It's like Marmite. Some people hate it, some people love it. But the one thing it does, when, whenever people do it, particularly for the first time, they always come away going, that was actually brilliant. I actually got to meet some new people and I feel, and I feel so much more confident about walking around the room and saying hi to people. And you, and you almost need that because otherwise you come in, you find your familiar face and you just huddle in little pods. And what we want and what we know everyone in, in our communities is like-minded, it's actually go meet some new faces, go make some new connections and so on. And for us, it's how do we enable that to happen? Speed networking, I know what you mean about Marmite. <laughs> I think the first time I came to one of these events and, and I, I didn't know what was going to happen next, and you were like, okay, now we're on to, on to uh, networking, speed networking. I'm thinking, oh no, this is going to be terrible. And actually, it was a bit, um, it was quite intense, but I suppose that's, that's the idea of it really, is it short, sharp, let's have a chat, you've got five minutes or whatever it is, then move on, next person, next person. And now, I, I love it, I think it's great because you get to speak to so many people so quickly. You make all those new, new kind of connections. And like you said, once you've broken the ice, it's okay to go and talk later again. Um, so I think it's a, it's a brilliant thing to do. I think the heart and what, we, what you see is as the longer you run with a community and that community gets to know each other, it does become quite split though. So those within a community, so say here, who have been coming for a number of years and will say, well, I know everyone in the room. I don't need this, I can just walk around, have a coffee. But those that haven't, it, you almost need that. And it's, it's a way of, and I think that's where it's, it's got to be a quid pro quo of actually there are new people here and this just makes them feel at ease and gives them that excuse to break the ice. It's, it's maybe the more uh, long-standing members giving back to the community. Absolutely. So they're, they're giving them to go through this process which they maybe technically don't need to do because they do know everybody, but it's their, it's their contribution to the overall community that you've created for them. A hundred percent, and that's that's what the way we try we, we try to push it. But uh, uh, we we've had this dilemma every year: do we pull it? And but everybody's everyone likes the outcome in the end. So, um, but uh, but I think that is the thing: is when if you are running an event, whatever that event is, is how do you get people to lower their guard, break the ice, and open up as quickly as possible? And you know, it's little techniques like that that uh, can help. That's a wonderful segue onto the next thing I want to ask you about, <laughs> which is giving back to the wider community with maybe some advice on events. Now, I'm, I'm fairly sure uh, Norm will put you guys out of business with this, but for smaller companies who are looking to try and run events, maybe client-facing events or, or possibly small B2B events, what advice have you got for those people in, in creating memorable events? I, I, I think the key is too often people will follow a formula of thinking, okay, well, let's get them in, we'll do a lunch, we'll do a dinner, we'll have a presentation, and it's a bit same old. It's, well, how can, you, how can you make it different? And I think people really underestimate the power of allowing, whether it's their cli clients or the delegates in this case, to talk with each other and to share their stories with each other. And I, and I think that doesn't often happen. 
Um, so if you're, if you're an advisor doing a client event, actually too often it's around talking around the business and integrating the advisors and the power planners, et cetera, with the clients. But actually, it should, how can you get the clients to network with each other, other more? Um, and creating some memor something memorable at the event. So I know we did one recently, we had a flash mob, just, just to give that element of surprise, where so people come away and go, gosh, that was really different. Um, and try because you know we all go to lunches and we all do go to different events, but it's how do you stand out from the crowd? For your events, you tend to pick quite iconic locations. Um, obviously, we're, we're in Tilney Hall today, which is an absolutely beautiful uh, country house hotel, massive grounds, wonderful. Uh, in London, you pick some iconic buildings in London to, to hold events in. Th does the location make a difference? Uh, to be honest, I would say yes. Um, but it, it's, it's so we, we a lot of our events we run out at the Barclay and it's become a bit synonymous with the brand there and it, and it works well. But, um, but I, it does have an impact still. I think people, if they're affected, anything from an event to a lunch invite or a dinner invite, that it does have an impact, absolutely. Would you say that location is one of the key things to consider when putting on a, an event almost as much as the content? It's creating the, the environment for people to feel as you want them to feel in the event. It's one of them. It's it's a recipe. It's it's like baking a cake. It's one of the ingredients. What's the rest? Uh, giving away all the Colonel. <laughs> what was it we said earlier? The Colonel Sanders sauce and things. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, but the the other thing is is I think the mistake a lot of people make is to think of an event just as an event, like a heartbeat in time. So people come together, they get really excited, but life's busy. When you go away from that event, it all fizzles out. So. And for me, the secret is how do you extend that heartbeat out so you can really have an impact in the run-up, the communication? Are you calling them all before so they feel personally they've been called up, checking they're coming to the event? Afterwards, how are you following up? Are you, what sort of content are you giving them? How are you helping them? Are you helping connections if they, if they met someone at the event? And I think it's a lot of times too much focus goes just on the event and not on the pre and the post stuff. Words of wisdom. How did you get into events from civil engineering? Um, so the honest answer, totally by mistake. Um, I was, I'd trained up to be a civil engineer, done my master's in civil engineering. I wanted to become a management consultant. Went traveling around Africa with a group of friends. We did up a Land Rover and uh, took it around Africa driving. And when I came back, I was already doing all my application forms for the big consultancies. And uh, a friend of mine's mum was working with Richmond Events, said, oh, look, while you're, while you're looking, why don't you just come and do a couple of months work with us? I then lost six years of my life on the cruise ships, having all sorts of fun, met my wife on the ship, three children later, so no regrets. And, and here I am in events. I, in my head, when I was 20-something, I would have been on a very different path. It's funny because your story is like most people that I know in financial services. <laughs> they, they answered a job advert or they knew someone who knew somebody or they were doing something menial and then it just happened and they kind of, once you're in a job, you, you then, I think you get used to it, you put more energy into it and then there's an opportunity to do the next level up and you're like, oh, well, I might as well continue with this for now and then 
before you know it, you're the managing director of your own events company and however many years later. Exactly, and you look back and think, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> As our regular listeners will know, uh, we end each show with our quickfire question round. This is an opportunity for the audience to get to know you a little bit better. So, James, are you ready for your quickfire questions? Go. Yes. <laughs> we'll start easy and then work okay. up. What's your favourite thing to do on a weekend? My favourite thing to do is to go walking up mountains. Uh, so, often in Snowdon, uh, I take the kids and we go up. Our favourite mountain is Triven and we uh, go trekking up and down mountains around there. It's my happy place, if you like, and what I love, I've got three children, and when, when they were little, we'd take them around the local hills and they would moan and say, oh, I'm hungry. And actually, when we go to there, they, we will walk for eight hours, no phones, just totally at one with nature conversation, and I, we love it. So much so, my daughter did the 15 Peak Challenge, she got into the Guinness Book of Records will be the youngest girl ever to do it. And honestly, if you could see her when she was three and the moaning she had going up our local hills, you just think, how did that person go from there to there? But yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm at my happiest. What motivates you? To be honest, I'm a people person. I, I love learning about people. I like being around people. I, I love meeting new people and I like trying to enable change to happen. So I think that's why naturally I fell into this with Owen James, with the, na with the, the nature of our events and so on. But um, absolutely, if, if I'm not around people, I tend to get a bit gloomy going to a cave and I, I like to be in the office. I like to be going around London and meeting people. What's something you've always wanted to do but haven't yet had the chance to? Well, when I watched Guns N' Roses not too long ago in concert, I always thought oh, I'd love to have been a rock star, but I have not got a single musical bone in my body, unfortunately, and I can't sing. So the more realistic answer is to write a children's book series. I've always loved telling children's stories, and I'd like to put pen to paper on some ideas I have. What's stopping you? Time. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it's with work and free kids and all sorts of things. And but you're right, I should uh, I should get get cracking. Free consultancy. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> What's something you've changed your mind about in the last year? Probably something work related was this whole hybrid events. So. I was passionate that this could be a good thing, particularly when you're connecting international communities. Um, and I still think there's an element of that, but really, particularly from an events perspective, I think there's a place for virtual and there's a place for in-person. And actually that middle ground, or, or whatever people say, it's, it's, it's still a bridge too far. Techno new technology is coming, which will enable it, but I don't think we're there yet. What's the greatest life lesson that you've learned? For me, I suppose just seizing opportunities as they arrive and, and not regretting it. I've, when I look at my path, so wanting to be a management consultant, going into events, there's definitely not been a, a clear straight line. There's lots of ways to get to the top of the mountain. 
Um, so yeah, absolutely. Not having regrets, not trying to be too regimented about a plan and so on. It's like just go with the flow. Um, and and it's to touch wood served me reasonably well so far. And to finish off, what advice would you give to your 10-year-old self? Um, I'd probably say, when I look back, is appreciate the everyday and embrace the unexpected. So appreciate the everyday. I just find as you get older, life gets busier, responsibilities rise, and you can just lose sight on the small things. That it, um, and it's just taking that time out to just remember the importance of those simple things, and then embracing the unexpected. Um, to, to say to that, you know, when you're you, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be. It's like actually, life is is life does throw spanners in the work, and and for me, my best nights out, my best adventures, have been totally accidental. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I won't go into the stories of the nights out, but I remember one of my when I went climbing in the Pyrenees. I'd been really ill the night before. And I just thought, you know what, it's crazy, I shouldn't go. But I went and it's probably still one of the best days of my life I ever had in those mountains. And it's like, actually, just when those opportunities arrive, just go grab them. Just say yes. Just say yes. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, James. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating having this conversation. Um, we've covered quite a lot of topics maybe I wasn't expecting to, to cover, but it's been brilliant to pick your brains uh, from the, the vast arrays of different markets that, that you deal with. Um, for anyone that hasn't yet come to an Owen James event, why not, I suppose is the first question, but if they want to, how, how should they uh, go about it? Um, so if you go on www.owenjamesgroup.com, um, you can see all of our events, but contact any me or any of the team. We'd love to see you. We run around 64 at the moment a year, so there's plenty to get your teeth stuck into. And, and from personal experience, it is well worth making the time to come to one of these events. They are they are really like like nothing else in the events calendar. Thanks ever so much, James, and uh, I look forward to working with you with the rest of the event. Thank you, Ben. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you want to find out more about attending an Owen James event or getting them to host an event for you, you'll find a link to their website in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and as always, I'll catch you in the next one.